Hello and welcome listeners to the Let's Talk About Grief podcast. If you've followed or listened to previous episodes, you'll know I like to offer hope by sharing my guest stories with you. You get to hear how they have navigated their own grief, which can be both helpful and healing, knowing you too can move forward after a loss. If this is your first time and you don't know me, I'm Antidute, your host and author of Grief's Abyss. And this is part of my mission to help demystify grief. Welcome listeners to our show. Today's episode is a difficult but a very important one. It's about coping with the loss of a child when the unthinkable occurs. Our guest today is Michelle Horde, the author of a new book, The Other Side of Yet, Finding Light in the Midst of Darkness, in which she shares her journey of navigating the unimaginable loss of her own daughter, Gabrielle. We'll also learn how she found incredible resilience and strength to continue from her media executive career with many of America's top networks to her own personal grief and healing journey. Michelle is a true inspiration to us all. Welcome, Michelle. It's truly an honor to have you with us today. And I'm so happy we were able to finally share your story with our listeners. Thank you so much. I appreciate your patience, um, but I'm, I'm really glad to be here today. And thank you for the lovely introduction. So welcome. Michelle, looking back, how has your life changed and have you found your other side of yet? You know, what I've learned in the uh, six years since I've lost my daughter, it's hard to believe it's been six years, is that there are many other sides. And, you know, life presents us with small and large life changes and shifts, both positive and negative, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Both tragic and triumphant. Um, And so for me, Certainly, there has not been a more heart-wrenching move or other side than to being a mother on the other side of police tape when my own child was taken from me. And as life has moved on and as I've tried to step-by-step continue my journey, and, you know, I don't believe with a tragedy like losing one's child, especially to violence, that there is a moving past, right? There is not a point where you say, okay, the grief is over, there's closure, I've moved on. You carry it with you. You learn to carry it with you over time, but you carry it with you. But I think the greatest lesson for me in writing the book and in exploring loss and grief and resilience is that life presents us with all of these pivot moments where we have the opportunity, if we can hold on to hope and do a lot of the things we talk about in the book where we can pivot and try to continue to move on with life, even though it may look different. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned you were the other side of the police tape. Now, you have 
been with others and comforting them and listening to their stories. Is that something you would like to sort of share with the listeners? What that was like for you? Yes. So I started my career uh, at America's Most Wanted, which was started by John Walsh, uh, whose own son was abducted and murdered. And so at the time, it really was a groundbreaking show. I mean, I'm dating myself a bit, but this was before, you know, we went on the internet to find things before we had social media. So for those who perhaps aren't familiar with the show, it was really a call to action to look for fugitives um, and for missing children. And there were 1-800 numbers set up that people could call in with tips. And we had law enforcement on the set of the show um, as the show went out live. And so my first big job there was a missing child uh, producer job. And what that meant, um, and again, this is before Amber's Law, which we have in the States now. Um, Whenever a child went missing, whenever there was a stranger abduction in the U.S., I would get a page Mm. and return it and go into the office and put together a public service announcement as quickly as possible that we would try to get out across the country through the Fox TV stations that carried America's Most Wanted. Okay. And then I would typically, you know, fly to the location and be with the family um, throughout the search and, you know, work on other potential news stories on it. Mm -hmm. And what I saw in those early days and that I continued to see as I worked in news throughout my career, whether it was a school shooting or, you know, an act of nature, a tornado or a hurricane, Mm -hmm. It's just how people in the worst moments of their lives find a way to keep going, Mm -hmm. you know, find a way to somehow tell a joke, perhaps, or how complete strangers just show up in miraculous and unexpected ways, whether that's as volunteers or staying up all night to look after children, you know, that people really do rally in these dark moments. And that for me became something as a television producer and a storyteller that I became just really fascinated by and gravitated to in terms of stories. How do people get from those darkest moments and somehow go on and somehow still look for the light? And so when I referenced my other side, certainly in those 20 plus years in television production, I never could have imagined a day where I would be driving up to a crime scene and it would be my house and my story. It was your story and your the evolution of what you had your career had been about. You now found yourself here. It's so interesting how a tragedy, whether it's a death or a tornado, the kindness of people, how they somehow rally around this very big moment. And that, do you find, brought a lot of comfort to the people that you were sitting with? I found that it was comforting to people. And I found, as an outsider looking in, that it was inspirational. You know, we hear so many 
horrible stories, right? We have so many ways in the world that we divide ourselves, unfortunately. And there are some universal truths about family, about love, about loss, that regardless of your background, you know, your origin, that there are those common denominators and that people, you know, gravitated to each other to stand together in those moments. Yeah. And it's having that support that is so uh, crucial, isn't it? Absolutely. I'm going to ask you about that. I'm going to cycle back. Would you like to share more about your story? And I'm certain that was the inspiration. And I'll ask you a little bit more about that. Is that okay? Of course. Thank you. So, you know, I worked in television, as I said, for 20 plus years um, and did not get married until I was in my late 30s and married someone I'd known my entire adult life. He was my brother's friend from college. Mm -hmm. And so we met in our early 20s and kept in touch. And as 20-somethings do, you go about your life, you have your career, you kind of try to find your way in the world. And in our mid-30s, we found our way back to each other and got married at 37. And at the time, I had been told really since I was a teen, that for a myriad of reasons, I may not be able to conceive and have a child, which probably more than being a wife, I wanted to be a mom. I had a wonderful mother and um, I really cherished the idea of becoming a mother myself. And almost miraculously, um, at the age of 39, I gave birth to a beautiful little girl, Gabrielle, Um, without any medical intervention, uh, natural pregnancy, natural delivery. And here she was in the world, my little miracle baby. Mm, Beautiful. And, you know, I, when I think of her, you know, it's, it's as if from the minute she got here, she was smiling and laughing and giggling. Um, Although I know that's not literally what happened, but that spirit, you know, which you can see even in small children came through. Sort of the essence. Absolutely. Absolutely. And effervescent is a word that I think (laughs) of when I think of her. Um, And so, you know, marriages get complicated over time and, after a lot of counseling, a lot of prayer, I realized when Gabrielle was about five or six that this marriage perhaps was not what I'd hoped it would be. Mm-hmm. And as a mother of a daughter, it was really important to me that what I told her and what I showed her were aligned. And unfortunately, as I thought about her growing up and having her own relationships, I couldn't, you know, I I feel like I would have been hypocritical. I I did not, I was not living in a healthy, loving relationship with the type of reciprocity Mm. and support that I certainly would encourage her to look for in a relationship. Sure. And so I asked my husband for a divorce when Gabrielle was seven. He did not want a divorce. He fought it tooth and nail for several months. 
Um, there was fortunately never any violence or threats of violence in the home, but I moved out a few months into the divorce negotiations because I just didn't want her exposed to any friction. And so she would go back and forth from what was our family home to a rental home I had rented a few miles away from her school. And I'll never forget June 5th, 2017, uh, my then husband calling me finally to say that he agreed, he would agree to the terms of the divorce um, and rushing, like afraid that he would change his mind before I could get to him to meet him at a notary to sign the papers. And as we parted ways, he gave me a hug and said, I'm so sorry about everything that's happened. And it was really a relief because, you know, this was someone I'd known my entire adult life. And, you know, in divorces, things can get so ugly and it feels like all of a sudden, you know, you're an enemy of someone that you've had such an intimate, the most intimate relationship with. And so I said to him, it doesn't matter. You know, all that matters is Gabrielle and our love for Gabrielle. You know, our marriage may not have worked out, but we'll always have our friendship and we'll always co-parent our daughter. And I went back to the rental house that night, feeling relieved, sharing the good news, as it were, with my family and friends. And went to work the next day thinking it was a normal day. Mm. And midway during that day, I received a phone call, unlike hopefully any other I'll ever receive in my life from Gabrielle's nanny. And the really blood curdling scream uh, made it clear to me that she had walked into a crime scene. Really, you could tell just from the way she was, I I guess, speaking to you. So here you are going from relief that your marriage was ending, but in a friendly way, it wouldn't be contentious anymore. And you could raise your daughter in a cordial atmosphere rather than it being conflicted. And then you get this phone call. Oh, carry on. I'm sorry to have interrupted you. No, no problem. And at first, you know, I knew she had come into the house and had seen signs that it was a crime scene. I told her to get out of the house to call 911. And initially, my first thought was, oh, my God, he's killed himself. You know, how will I tell Gabrielle? How will I help her with this? And then I just felt this cold, piercing fear. And reached out to uh, a dear friend whose daughter was the same age as Gabrielle, who would always be at school um, for drop off and asked her if she had seen Gabrielle that morning. And she said no. And suddenly. This became a nightmare of completely different proportions. And I remember going to look for a small little room I had been facilitating in a large conference space and shutting the door and getting on my knees and saying, God, I don't know what I'm about to walk into, but please just give me the strength to handle whatever it is. And, you know, a series, as you can imagine, of of frantic phone calls to family and friends, I started to make my way back home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was about an hour ride with a friend driving from Midtown Manhattan in horrible rush hour traffic it was the longest ride oh, of my entire yeah, life. Yeah, for sure. 
And the longer we were in the car, the clearer that I was that Gabrielle probably was no longer alive because other folks, you know, were closer and were arriving at the scene before me. And certainly good news comes quick, right? If if there yeah. were good news to share, if it was she's in the hospital, but she's okay, they found her, that's something you would call with. And at a point, people weren't returning my texts or calls. Oh, it and was silent. Yes, yes. And I remember one of my closest friends calling and asking how close I was. And I said, I was, you know, just a few blocks away and, you know, approaching this street where my husband and I had bought our first house together, where he carried me over the threshold, where we, you know, like most nervous new parents brought our child gingerly up the steps into our home. Yeah. Now there was an ambulance and police cars and police tape and people I knew and strangers on the street. And the first person I saw with clear focus was the pastor of my church. And when I got out of the car, he confirmed that Gabrielle was no longer alive and that her father had been taken into police custody. Goodness. It, you were met with the pastor of your church, and he was the one that broke this news to you. Was that, how can it be any softer? Coming from him, was it a little easier than hearing it from the police? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it was, you know, I talk about my faith a lot in the book, and I, at that moment, and I later learned it's June 6th, this is wedding anniversary. So imagining later him finding this out and leaving his wife's side to ensure he was there um, when I when I arrived um, said a great deal about the type of man he is, for sure, the type of pastor and leader that he is. Yeah, for sure. And it was probably the very person, apart from your family, that you needed to give you that strength and support. As you say, your faith has always been very strong. And I love how you say your faith has been very strong because so often when there's been this tragic event, people will turn away from their faith and blame God, how could you let this happen? But it sounds as if, Michelle, you went deeper into your faith. I did. I did. You know, I I think for a couple of reasons, I lost my mother suddenly to a cerebral aneurysm when she was 50 and I was 24. And at the time, her mother was dying of cancer that had spread to her brain. So I lost my mother and my maternal grandmother within 90 days. Oh, in 1994. And what I learned about the Bible verses and the songs and the scriptures and the the rituals that, you know, through osmosis had acquired in my young mm-hmm. life was that faith was like an insurance policy okay. for me. Yes. And in that, at that moment in my life, the worst, most tragic thing that had ever happened to me I found that somehow that faith was something I could hold on to. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, certainly the, you don't measure tragedy, you don't measure loss. And at the same time, I think it would be hard for most people to argue that losing a child violently is not at the far end of the spectrum um, in terms of, of worse nightmare. Absolutely. But for me, to say why me suggests why anyone, you know, mm-hmm. there, there is no one that I would wish this upon. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the grounding principles of my faith uh, is gratitude. And even in those early days, I thought back on all of those horrific stranger abduction stories mm-hmm. that I'd covered. And so even in this horrific scenario where someone I loved and trusted and who Gabrielle loved and trusted and who, to a point, I you know felt my husband loved our daughter more than anything. You know, there were things that she wasn't exposed to. Uh, There was not the fear of a stranger kidnapping. You know, there were things that I was grateful for Mm -hmm. that in my mind would have been more horrific um, even than what I was experiencing. Oh gosh. And so holding on to gratitude even in the gratitude of a pastor who would, who would come to be there and deliver news, you know? So I I think in those early, early stages, for sure, that was the only way to keep going. Yeah. So it sounds as if that faith that you had, as you mentioned, losing your mom and your grandmother so quickly, the faith, that you had gave you the strength. It was almost like a life raft you were clinging to, to help you move through it. Absolutely. And so when I lost Gabrielle, you know, some 23 years later, obviously completely different circumstances, completely different situation. And yet that faith was still strong enough to, to hold me. Yes, absolutely. Because I'm certain there were possibly times when you wondered, why are you still here? Did you ever think that you may choose to join your daughter? I've heard so many stories uh, of that being the little script running through people's minds. Well, I mean, I certainly, realistically, based on all of the information I later was exposed to understood that the plan probably had been literally for me to walk in and that my life was probably supposed to end that day as well. Had my then husband had his plan. Okay. Um, my caregiver surprised him. He unbeknownst to me had texted her to say Gabrielle was homesick and that she didn't need to come over. And she decided to pop in just to do some laundry and surprised him. Um, He was expecting me to come over. I had expected to go over after work to meet with he and Gabrielle after school to talk about the next steps. So there was that literal piece. And then obviously trying to imagine what life would look like without her. And at 47, right, where, well, there's no replacing people, especially children, 
you know, there was the added piece that certainly I would not naturally conceive and be able to get pregnant and have a child again. So it felt like so much was stolen from me. Yes. But, you know, I think I remember Googling this verse from the book of Job on my way back to the rental house as a friend drove me back there from the crime scene because I wanted to make sure I remembered it correctly. And it's though he slay me, yet do I trust him. And the story of Job, for those who perhaps are not familiar with the Old Testament story, is a man who is tested, really loses almost everything, health, wealth, family. Yeah. And his wife basically says, why don't you just curse God and die? Mm. And he refuses to. And so I felt like whatever, this was worse than my worst nightmare. You know, this was unimaginable what happened and how it happened. And so I think this fighter in me emerged that said, you know, I'll be damned if mm-hmm. I'm taken out by this, that I, I need to be here to fight for her, to fight for justice, to fight for her legacy, and that whatever God had for me to do in the world perhaps was powerful enough that evil was trying to get rid of me. And, you know, that may sound preposterous, ridiculous, or, you know, um, delusional perhaps to some people, but that's, that was what gave me the rope to keep holding on during those early days. And the way you say it, God must have a, almost a, a bigger plan. When you look back to think that you too, when you started to piece things together, that your ex-husband was planning your death also, that thought and going back to that uh, biblical quote there must have given you even more strength to recognize that there was a bigger, there was something bigger that you still needed to do. Yes. And, you know, the title of my book, The Other Side of Yet, comes from, you know, living life on one side of these stories and then coming to the other side, but also from the word yet. And that verse was aspirational, quite frankly, for a long time. And, And so as I begin to journal, I've I've written my entire life and and certainly had not planned to write this type of book. Um, It it evolved over time. But as I started to grapple early on with this and pray and started rereading the book of Job and, you know, writing in a journal every day, life became about how do I get to that other side of yet of trusting again, Mm -hmm. of, of having faith after feeling like my life had been destroyed. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a a journaling question that that you would sort of continually go, how can I get to the other side to find my faith and trust again? I, you know, listen, I I don't know that I was that linear in thought (laughs) in those early days and weeks and months. Um, I'm sure it was you know, disparate parts here and there. But what I found 
I was blessed to find a trauma therapist for starters, um, which made a tremendous difference. And, you know, there are different types of therapists. And one, I encourage those who are struggling with any type of depression or or loss to find some type of therapy. And I'm grateful that it's become, you know, not only more acceptable, but more accessible, you know, that there are different types of ways people can get therapy today. But a trauma therapist, especially having, you know, dealing with a crime and an ongoing investigation and the court, all, all of the things that would come up, I would sometimes share with her my journal entries. And occasionally she would say, Michelle, that's so powerful. You should share that with your close friends or you should share that with your dad. And over time, as I started sharing them, the responses I was getting back was, you're giving me hope. You know, reading this is is so powerful for me, a step away from what you've dealt with. You could probably help so many people. And that's how over time I started to think perhaps, you know, the holes that I felt had formed in my heart were allowing light to shine through for other people mm-hmm. and began to consider memorializing my journey with the journal entries, with, you know, what I had learned along the way uh, into an actual book. So that was the inspiration. It was you sharing it with your trauma specialist and seeing the response from others that you then decided, well, I can share this with others to, to give them from what I've gone through to share it with others. And that is how the book evolved. Yes, yes. Was writing the book even more cathartic for you when you began to see it sort of linear and in concrete written word? Writing it was, I'll be honest, really traumatic. And, you know, revisiting Mm. Um, you know, now two years removed those early days and weeks and months. And I did find once it was completed, once I saw the finished product, you know, there was this duality of someone who'd always written and had always dreamed of writing a book and was able to get this book deal now with a major publisher and publish a book to see my name, to see the book. And then the reality of what was in the pages, right? So for me, I think that catharsis has emerged as people have read the book and I've received, whether it's church groups or direct messages on Instagram, or when I speak to groups, people saying, I lost my brother, I lost my cousin, I've gone through a divorce, I lost family during COVID and your book meant a great deal to me, or I read your book in two days and then bought four copies for my family members because we just lost our mother. And so I think that for me is when it became clear, this was what I was supposed to do and started to think of it almost like a ministry, you know, that sharing this story was not for me, certainly, but hopefully for others who needed it. Yeah. So they would read your story and recognize a sort of a pathway to help themselves, but then to recognize 
well, my loss doesn't seem quite as bad. You know, if this person can get through the unimaginable loss of a child, then perhaps I too can learn to to live with, with what I'm being faced with. Yes. A ministry, Michelle. <laughs> Did you ever see yourself as a minister? <laughs> I'm sure when I was hanging out and partying, and I mean, it hasn't been that long ago, um, (laughs) I don't think anyone would dare (laughs) let that cross their lips. I didn't say reverend, I said a ministry. (laughs) Um, I was just kind of thinking it that. No, I, I, you know, listen, one of the things I'm incredibly grateful for is I have not lost my sense of humor. Do you know what I mean? I think I, yes. so important, even in hard conversations, in hard times, yeah. to find little pockets of joy and humor to keep going, for sure, for yeah. sure. But yes, it does feel, you know, like a calling. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that whenever people experience tragedy, especially probably sudden and unexpected tragedy, you try to make sense of it, right? And it will never make sense. It will never make sense. I've had my therapist, who's a professional, tell me, you know, you didn't see it because there was nothing to see. This was a true sociopath. And so there is no, there is no, you know, as much as we can say, I don't understand how I could have lost my mother at 50, I do intellectually understand what a cerebral aneurysm is and how she died, right? Yes. I will never understand how Gabrielle's father did this and then went to court and pled not guilty and continues to this day to fight as if he did not do this. I will never make sense. So for me, the message is about you know, how do you survive when there will never be an explanation, when it'll never add up? How do you find a way to still move forward and find meaning, perhaps in other ways? Other ways, for sure. And just what you said about the way he still hasn't taken ownership for what he's done, that could leave you if you so chose to go into a world a world, a world of bitterness and re, and anger and be fighting that but as your therapist says these are some of the unanswerable things and perhaps it's best not for us to choose to deal with and i guess this is where your faith and hope and trust in god that will be taken care of. This isn't yours to deal with and ex- sort of accept and choose to move to the to where you need to go rather than going into that anger is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. I mean, listen, I absolutely, as a mother, you know, and, and you're, if you're mentally healthy, you know, the core gut reaction of any parent is to protect your child, right? And so as a mother who's experienced the ultimate betrayal by the other parent who is to be protector, I will not pretend like I was not mad as hell at him and did not want to see him face whatever, you know, the law um, and justice, earthly justice would allow and testified in court 
um, and did all I could on Gabrielle's behalf. And at the same time, anger and bitterness and focus on him. And I even changed his name in the book because, quite frankly, I didn't want to give him any glory. And the person I knew, honestly, is gone, you know. And so I chose kind of symbolically for myself to, to even change his name in the book. Spending time thinking about him, focusing on him at all, to me, is somehow giving in to what he wanted, which was to destroy me, literally and figuratively. And so instead, uh, and again, while I have and if called to, would continue to fight to do whatever I could for him to remain imprisoned for the rest of his life, he is not the focus. Yeah. And, you know, I early on decided that it was important that I survive not just to try to help others, but closest to my heart to ensure that Gabrielle was remembered for who she was and not what happened to her. And so that's what I focus on. That's it for sure. Not what happened to her, but who she was. And to that end, you, before I go there, let's go back to your book, because in it, you have worked it in such a way that you have chapters at the end that are great for book clubs to take the information. Would you like to share more about that? Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. So in the paperback version, we created a reader's guide. Um, and I've heard feedback from book clubs that it's a great way to go through the book together. Um, there are questions, there are questions that groups can explore together. In fact, I've been asked by some large book clubs to join book club discussions and um, have done that. I think I actually am doing one in the next week or so. But, you know, it's a way to process this from a variety of experiences. You know, this book is not just for thankfully, the small group of people that had my specific experience, but we all have to get to the other side at some point in our lives, right? Whether that's divorce or COVID or a wayward child or cancer or losing a job. Um, We all have moments where we say, my God, this is not what I thought my life would be. And so what the reader's guide tries to do is pull from the book, some of the examples, some of hopefully the helpful tips to create discussion and dialogue among the readers. And that is so, so important because this is a topic that we certainly don't do very well in society. So the more books such as yourself can get and create an interest and have book clubs to be able to have others read it and educate themselves. And you're so right. It, It would appear that our lives can go along seemingly beautiful and then all of a sudden we're met with a change, a challenge. I mean, who could have forecasted COVID was coming? That's right. That was the biggest change and challenge. We all had to rise to the occasion to navigate. So learning how you can navigate these large changes, and it sounds like this is the sort of topics your book can cover and can help others. So congratulations. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. And like I said, you know, there is nothing um, that affirms that this was what I was supposed to do more than hearing from readers who say, this has been very helpful to me. This has changed my life. Now, going right back to what I raised a little while ago before that thought popped into my head, Gabrielle's Playground. Now, for those on audio, I'm going to describe, I'm looking at Michelle and her background picture is of a physical playground with butterflies, beautiful blues and purples, and it's just a delight. Um, I mean, my senses <laughs> want to just go there and visit it. Would you like to share with those listeners on audio what it's all about, Michelle? Uh, absolutely, and thank you for, for describing it so vividly. It is my happy place, literally and figuratively, <laughs> which is why I like to have it as a background. Um, <laughs> I uh, started a nonprofit foundation called Gabrielle's Wings that is focused on children that were my daughter's age. Gabrielle was seven. And she was a child of relative privilege who was going to be able to go to the best schools and have certain types of experiences that, frankly, a lot of children that look like her don't necessarily have. And so what Gabrielle's Wings works to do is to work with that elementary aged uh, child who's from a traditionally underserved community and look for opportunities to stand in the gap, whether that's education, cultural awareness. Uh, this playground was the very first project we did, and uh, it was a project that, you know, was built in the front of her school and um one of my mandates in us doing it was that it would be open to the entire community, that regardless of whether children went to the school or not, it would be open to the entire community. And that we had auditory and sensory uh, pieces that would uh, be accessible to children of all abilities. And so this was our first project. And, you know, as we've evolved and frankly, COVID, like for so many organizations, has helped inform the types of things that we work on now. But we focus still on that elementary age child um, and all types of literacy and social emotional learning, which we know is really a challenge for our children after the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, how wonderful. So people can visit the playground. It's in New York? Yes, it's in New Rochelle, New York, um, in front of the Ward Elementary School. It's a physical place. Um, and they can visit the foundation at gabriellswings.org and look at the work that we're doing on three continents um, with children in different communities, different projects. Um, so, uh, you know, again, as I said to you earlier, her legacy you know, who she was, this is my way as a mother of honoring that. Mm, that is wonderful. So people can go and visit your foundation and do, can they apply for different things? Is I'm sure it's all self-explanatory. And then if they want to donate, 
You were yes. that as well. Yes. We're all, you know, I don't know a foundation that's not open to donations. So we're absolutely. <laughs> that would be a big open. donor. Yes, not yes that would be donate. problematic. Um, <laughs> but so, yes, of course, people can donate and we would love for them to donate. Um, and we do offer grants to other nonprofits that are working with the populations that we serve and have grant cycles and all of that sort of information is definitely on the website. Okay. What words of hope and inspiration do you want to leave our listeners with, Michelle? I think it's important that wherever you are in your life, you know, life is is constant change, right? Most of us are either going through something right now, coming out of something, or perhaps about to walk into something that's unexpected. Um, Or perhaps expected, you know, even something like a marriage, you know, there are, there's that use stress even, right? And life changes. Um, I just recently moved. And even though I chose to move, you know, the chaos and everything. So in the complete scale of change, to hold on to the things that are important to you, to look for those opportunities, to express gratitude, And I think most important to my heart is if you have someone in your life that is coping with grief, be willing to be open and vulnerable and offer to just be there in whatever way they need. You know, people want to say the right thing. They want to do something. Really, the best thing you can say to someone is, I'm sorry. I can't imagine. How can I help today? And to be open to having that vulnerability instead of believing you can somehow relate or you can somehow change things. What people need to hear is those expressions and then for you to just be able to sit with them in those moments. Yeah, no need to fix. You're not broken. You're just grieving, aren't you, Michelle? Absolutely, and I love that expression. So well. Where can people find this book? <laughs> the yes. other side of yet. <laughs> yes. Well, it is everywhere books are sold. Wherever okay. you you buy your books online or or in a store, you will find it. I'm happy to say. Um, and I have a website which is just my name, Michelle Horde.com. Um, and you can certainly purchase the book from there as well. Okay. So the website is about your um, about the book. Um, is there links to the foundation there? Absolutely. It's Gabrielle. right at the top. Yes. There's a link to Gabrielle's Wings. Uh, at Gabrielle's my own. Wings. Yes. Yes. And I'm just noticing the uh, colors in the background. I believe those are wings. Yes. Made the connection. Yes. Thank you. Yes. yes. We will make sure that we have all that in the show notes. Is there anywhere else, Pete, you'd like people to reach out to you? Are you on any social media channels? Or the- Yeah, I am. I uh, try to post regularly on Instagram um, at MDHord, like medical doctor, H, you know, M-D-H-O-R-D, uh, although I'm not a doctor. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I talk a lot about grief and trauma and hopefully offer inspiration to people who are struggling. And so I would love for people to follow me at MD Horde. Okay. 
we'll make sure your Instagram handle is there also. Fantastic. So thank you so much for finding time. I know you've just moved. You're in the middle of a writer's strike. Life is certainly continuing to throw up more cha- uh, change and challenges for you. Hopefully you will find a new way to your side of yet. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Let's Talk About Grief podcast. It's truly been an honor. Thank you so much for your time. Bye-bye, listeners. Until next time. Well, listeners, that indeed is a wrap. Be sure to follow us by clicking on the link and you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. And if you are feeling inspired, please leave a review. And if you are indeed grieving, please know you don't have to feel alone in your grief, but reach out. As a coach, I'm more than happy to chat with you on how coaching can both support you in your chaos and pain without forcing you to endure your grief-stricken world. You can contact me at anne at understandinggrief.com. Or you can visit my website at Understanding Grief. I'm Anne. Bye-bye for now.